Today, however, it's my great pleasure to um, welcome to the group uh, Professor Martin Cook. Um, Martin is the Stockdale Professor of Professional Military Ethics at the United States um, Naval War College uh, in Rhode Island. He has published uh, broadly and widely on pretty much every um, important issue within the ethics of, uh, of war. Uh, he's also one of the founding editors of the Journal of Military Ethics, uh, which is what many of you will uh, will know. Um, and he's, I think he's going to say a little bit about his background, but he's also, one of the significant things about him is that he is trained both as a philosopher and as a theologian. Uh, and that, I think, will be informing some of the, um, the remarks that he's going to be uh, giving us today. So, Martin, welcome. Thanks very much. Well, um, I thought I would start... Uh, I usually wouldn't do this, but I thought a little of my biography might be helpful because I think it will help situate some of my reflections. Um, I'm a, an Air Force brat, as we say in the United States, so I grew up entirely on Air Force bases until about 15. My father was a bomber pilot in strategic air command, so nuclear, nuclear weapons in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, so you might imagine that was made a considerable impression on me. I used to tell cadets when I taught at the Air Force Academy that I really didn't expect I'd still be alive now. And that's literally true. Um, I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis quite vividly when all the airplanes took off in one minute interval takeoffs and the sky got black. And I thought, that's probably it. So that was a very formative experience for me. Um, I did my education at, in, in philosophy, as David said, and also in religious studies, um, and, as well as classics. And for the first half of my career, I had a purely civilian academic career. I taught at the College of William and Mary, and then for nearly 20 years at Santa Clara University of California. Um, but a funny thing happened to me right after I got tenure at Santa Clara. The phone rang out of the blue, and it was an Air Force colonel saying, would I like to be a visiting professor at the United States Air Force camp in Colorado Springs? So having just gotten tenure, I thought, what the heck? Why not? I mean, it would be nice to do something else. Uh, my family's sort of from Colorado anyway. So I went there for a year, and that was the year 1991-92. Now, those of you who remember your history remember that was the first Gulf War. So uh, while I was in the philosophy department, a number of my colleagues were returning pilots from the Gulf War who were very troubled by some of what they had seen. Uh, in particular, uh, one pilot from, was a participant in the Highway of Death. You young people may not remember it, but it was a scene of a highway from Kuwait City into Basra with thousands of, of blown-up vehicles. Um, uh, lots of dead corpses around. Uh, in fact, it was in many respects the political end of the war. Colin Powell saw those pictures and thought, you know, we're going to have to stop this real quick. And so we wrote a paper on what actually happened then, uh, and that was my first paper on military ethics. And I quickly discovered um, that this is a field that is not well occupied by people who can span these worlds, right? Have some knowledge of the military, who have some knowledge of normative ethics, who are interested in both. Um, and so uh, increasingly, my career evolved in the direction of writing and thinking in that area. I went back to Santa Clara, and then in 98, there was an ad to be the professor of ethics at the Army War College in Pennsylvania. Um, so on the what-the-heck theory, I applied to go there. I was a little bored, um, and I took that position. Now, for those of you not familiar with the system of professional military education in the United States, the war colleges are the top tier of the professional system. Most officers will go through three major layers of training in the course of a career. They'll go through an academy or a reserve officer training program uh, as a pre-commissioning level. Then they will go to, uh, at, at about captain's 03 grade, they'll go to a, to a command staff school. And then at about 23 years of service at the rank of lieutenant colonel or so, they'll go to a war college, right? So this is sort of baby general school. Right? Uh, so um, going to Carlisle turned out to be a wonderful experience for me in the sense that I learned so much from my students. Most of my students had been battalion commanders. Almost all of them had combat experience. Uh, they had done a lot of things. Um, so you're really not a teacher there. You're a kind of uh, impresario of an orchestra. People have a lot of experience that you can draw on in the classroom. Um, and that turned out to be a wonderful learning experience for me. Um, then it should just go quickly. I went back to the Air Force Academy for a while, and finally I went to the Naval War College to the Stock uh which is very nice. So. Um, in some ways, the secret of success has been to find a really small pond and be a reasonably good-sized fish in it, right? So the number of people who do military ethics in the way that I'm talking about, namely in close proximity to people actually doing the professional stuff, is very few. Um, 
Um, military ethics conferences like the scene in Casablanca, you know, round up the usual suspects. Um, so that's what I've been doing. So um, now another thing about this is much earlier in my life, when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, I ended up teaching at a medical school, kind of by accident. Uh, a brand new medical ethics program. Medical ethics was just getting started really in the early 70s. And I quickly discovered something that stayed with me all my life, which is you can't walk from the philosophy department across the street to the med school and talk the way you were talking in the philosophy department and get any traction at all. Um, you have no credibility with them. Um, their eyes blaze over quickly. Uh, they're, uh, if they're, they're somewhat interested in theory, but only if it scratches an itch they know they've got, right? So you, you've got to persuade them that they've got the itch before if there's any point in trying to bring theory to bear on it. So that basic thought has stayed with me throughout. And that's sort of the theme I want to develop um, in, in some of this talk. And I hope it'll be a dialogue. So if you have a question at any point, uh, please put up your hand. In fact, let me just stop now. Any questions about what I've already said? Okay. Now, as David indicated, uh, we started the Journal of Military Ethics about 10, it'll be 10 years ago this fall. Um, and the founding idea of the Journal of Military Ethics was to find a place where this intersection of theory and practice could be well developed. And one of the things that we've discovered as, as editors is we get many submissions to the journal which we reject, even though they're very high quality. But what they typically are are intra-philosopher arguments with each other. Um, and one of our standards of what we want to put in the journal is, would this be of interest to a thoughtful kernel? Would a thoughtful kernel possibly pick this up and find it helpful? Uh, in fact, uh, I, we published an editorial at the beginning of the journal as, as uh, just this year, saying, what do we think military ethics actually is? Um, and what do we think it isn't? Um, so that's the theme I want to develop. And not, none of this is meant to say that other disciplines are not free to do whatever they want to do. You know, if people in, in strictly philosophy journals want to talk about just war theory and the way philosophers talk about it, that's fine, you know, have fun with it, uh, but it's not relevant <coughs> to the professional. So what I want to talk about first is really what do we mean by professions? Now, in the US military, this has had uh, become a very hot topic. Admiral Mullen, who is our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, convened a meeting in Washington about six weeks ago. I don't think a meeting like this has ever happened in the history of the US military. Uh, there's about 50 people in a room, and he said, I'm very worried about us. He, and he had two major themes. So after 10 years of war, do we know who we are? We've seen that we are capable of doing some pretty bad things. We really need to reflect on this. And he said, I was a young officer in Vietnam. I know what a really broken military looks like. Um, and if we're not self-consciously attending to the health of our profession, we're going to come out of this in really bad shape. We're already in pretty bad shape in practical terms, in terms of broken equipment and, and uh, stressed out soldiers. And, you know, most captains in the military has 30-year-olds. I've already been to Afghanistan and Iraq three times, right? So this is, this is an incredible toll that we're taking on our people. It'll be a long time to recover from it. The other thing he said was, uh, we, the military, don't know the American people, and the American people don't know us. Um, and I think that's increasingly true. As you probably know, the United, switched, the United States switched to an all-volunteer or all-recruited force in 1973. So we have nothing but volunteers. So you can imagine that this tracks in a couple of ways. You get uh, people who need, a, who need a job in the enlisted ranks. And in the officer corps, it's become largely a family business. Uh, that is, it's, most officers are the sons and grandsons of previous officers. That's how it works. So that's a very isolated little community. And, right, it, and it quickly falls into groupthink. So uh, about 12 years ago, a very intelligent retired army colonel with a PhD teaching at West Point named Don Snyder started a project called the Future of the Army Profession Project. You're nodding in the back. Some of you read into this literature. Um, Don uh, was upset when he heard a, a young West Point graduate come back from uh, the Balkans and say to a group of cadets at West Point, I told my unit when we went, uh, force protection is our major job while we're here. There's nothing in the Balkans worth anybody getting hurt over. And Don, being an experienced combat officer, sort of screwed himself into the ceiling and said, when did accomplishing the mission come to be subordinate to, for protecting our own forces? 
and by the way, when did you get the idea that just because you don't like this mission, you get to shirk about it, right? Um, and it's true, the Army really didn't like those missions uh, at, at the time. So he started this project saying, uh, what are officers? Are they professionals? Or, as he liked to put it, are they merely obedient bureaucrats? And what difference would it make? And so um, the project convened about 50 scholars over a course of about two years. It culminated in a very good book I highly commend you called The Future of the Army Profession. Um, and he said, look, drawing on the sociology literature, he said, professions are characterized by a number of things. I won't get all of them. But first of all, they have a body of abstract knowledge. Uh, and it's, the, it's the part of the ethical obligation of the profession both to, to, to know the existing body of knowledge and to develop and adapt it for future applicability. And it's abstract knowledge because it's applied at discretion. It's not like something you can simply train for. It's a kind of expert knowledge that you have to bring and make judgments about how you use it. Secondly, um, professions are characterized by corporateness. That is, they maintain their own standards. Uh, and in the U.S. military, uh, it's certainly the case up to the various highest ranks, although every officer is technically promoted by the Senate. It's very rare that the Senate actually looks by name at who it is until you get to a very, very high rank. So uh, officers decide who gets in, who gets out, who gets promoted, who gets what job, who gets rewarded. So it's corporate in that way. It has its own ethic. Um, and it's expected to both teach and enforce that ethic. Um, and it has a strong sense of what its own expertise is. So in the unequal dialogue that goes on between military professionals and civilian leaders, part of their job is to make sure that they clearly articulate something from their body of expertise to guide um, the uh, civilians to make the right decision about what they're doing. So professional ethics, in that sense, is meant in that kind of narrow way. That how does it help address the practitioner to make them more self-aware of their professional status. Now that's a pretty important point, so let me stop, see if there's any conversation we need to have about that. Maybe quickly I'll do a little historically. Classically in the West, there were only three professions. By this I mean the late Middle Ages, early, the early modern period. Only three things. We use the word profession in, the modern, in modern English, at least in the US, we mean people get paid for it. Is that how you guys use it? So, anybody want to take a guess what the three classical professions were? Church, Church, clergy, law. law, and medicine. Exactly, right? What do those three have in common that make them different from other kinds of jobs? Specific body knowledge. They're corporate in the sense in which I talked about. There's one other important thing that I didn't mention already. They have a position of high social trust for something that society thinks <coughs> is very important. So there's a kind of contract between the society and the profession that says, you are going to deal with something we consider vitally important, and we realize that you will have a unique body of expertise. And in exchange for that, we're going to give you these privileges that we don't give most other people, right? And that relationship exists only so long as we trust you, right? Only so long as the society continues to trust you. Can societies lose trust in professions? Absolutely. Um, when I was in college, uh, my first freshman year was the height of the Vietnam War. We invaded Cambodia. Uh, students were killed at Kent State University. It became impossible to walk across my campus in an ROTC uniform. Uh, I got an A in logic because it was impossible to go to class after midterms because of the burning of the buildings. So, uh, so if you want to see a complete loss of confidence in a profession, you can, you can definitely see. In, in modern America, accountancy just went through this. Sir, if you'd like, there are plenty of chairs. Just come on in. Okay. Um, okay, so if we think about military officership in professional terms, um, one of the consequences of this Snyder project over the course of 10 or 12 years is the U.S. Army has completely embraced this logic of professional. Okay. To the point that there are now official army doctrine statements on the profession. This coming year, coming directly from the chief of the staff of the army, is the year of the army professional ethic. Uh, all of the U.S. Army General Officer Corps is now speaking this vocabulary in a non-trivial way. I mean, not, not just the buzzwords, but they've actually kind of absorbed pretty seriously what this language is, is and what it's meant to capture. One of the most heated debates 
is a question you just asked, right? Um, because, uh, for example, at Admiral Mullen's conference, uh, a very senior Marine Master Sergeant gave an impassioned argument that at least senior NCOs are members of the profession. Right? Uh, one of the colonels from West Point said, with all due respect, not really. You don't have the body of professional knowledge. You are implementers of the professional judgment of the officer. It turned out very quickly, if you're a philosopher listening to this, there's some equivocation on the term professional going on here. Right? Uh, on the one hand, there's this kind of technical sociological definition that I just gave, it, which is a pretty good argument that only the officers really are that. Right? Uh, on the other hand, there's also a sort of uh, just general term of praise use of the term. Right? and which people are offended if you say, well, you're not really professional, because in fact, military people have a very small moral vocabulary. There are basically two words in it, professional and integrity, okay? So use the word professional to praise anything you like, and you say unprofessional for anything you don't like, everything from a messy desk to, to, to not cleaning your weapon properly. Um, and, and you say integrity as if that explains everything, and of course it's never spelled out what that means, but. It's still the book on implicit meaning. <coughs> Those are their two favorite moral words. So that's why you very quickly get into this equivocation argument, right? And I don't know how the army is going to settle that. I'll tell you right now, that's a heated debate today in, in the army because they're just rolling out this training program. Okay, but the sense of the army is, um, you know, if we don't pay explicit attention to the moral health of, of of who we are, we're going to be in deep trouble. We've already seen some pretty deep trouble. Uh, so um, that's that's where it comes. Plenty of argument around the edges. Now, if you start thinking about military officership as a profession, it quickly becomes clear there's not necessarily just one of these. Um, to do professional ethics well, you have to start understanding the profession in a, in a fairly finely nuanced way. So let me give you some, a couple of things to think about. All military services are defined by what in the US we call the pointy end of the spear. The, the, the part of it that does the serious combat work, right? Um, so in the, in the Army, there's a distinction between the combat <coughs> arms branches, infantry, artillery, uh, and the combat service support branches, like logistics and things like that. And the prestige ends of it are the pointy end of the spear parts of it, right? So that sort of sets the tone for the whole service. And you have to get close to the service to begin, begin to understand that. And sometimes these identities are in flux, right? So for example, artillery has played a pretty small role in Afghanistan and Iraq, for obvious reasons, right? So artillery officers are feeling kind of like we're not getting much respect right now, right? Um, so when you start to try to understand the internal dynamics of the army, you have to get down to that level of detail to figure out what's going on with them. Um, another problem for all military services is trying to get the right balance between their inherently conservative nature and the fact that they need to adapt to a new environment. So I think it's now common knowledge the U.S. Army <coughs> failed miserably in Iraq for the first sort of three to four years. It did so because it tried to do Iraq the way it had been trained to do other things. <coughs> and it really didn't like counterinsurgency. In fact, the Army stopped even talking about counterinsurgency after Vietnam. I mean, in fact, the general idea in the Army is, well, let's never do that again, or anything like that ever again. And it was only when it was visibly failing that basically you had to change out of the senior officer corps in the Army. You had to get rid of a whole cadre of people. And guys like Petraeus and McMaster, who were not getting promoted, suddenly get in because they're willing to adapt. Now the buzz in the Army is, are we all becoming, the, jar, the pejorative jargon is coinistas. Um, is everybody so obsessed with counterinsurgency that you need to get back to the skills that you dropped to be able to adapt in this way? Um, so uh, for many years, um, when I first went to work for the Army, they sent me out to the National Training Center, uh, which is this enormous piece of desert out in California. Um, and they practiced for combined arms battles. So I'm freezing my butt up on a mountaintop one at, at four o'clock in the morning, and these tanks are rolling across, and the F-15s are strafing them, and also, this could cost like a million dollars a day to do this training, right? It's, it's, it's very impressive to look at. I think, for what war are we is this? What war are we training for? Uh, this, is, this, is a, this is training to fight the Russians in the fold of gap. That's what this is. Um, 
it, it took him quite a long time to realize that he needed to start putting civilians out there on that battlefield and Afghan villages and make, make them sign and negotiate with the locals and you know completely rework the training uh, because you basically are going to fight the way you train, right? And we were training entirely for the World War. Um, so back to my professionalism question. It's an ethical obligation of a profession to adapt its body of knowledge and expertise so as to be relevant. But it's always a tension to get them to do it. One of the examples I used in my own chapter in Snyder's book is, suppose you had a, a highly trained thoracic surgeon and suddenly you have a large public health emergency. What you objectively need are low-tech public health workers. So you go to the surgeon and you say, look, you're a physician, you're committed to treating patients. Objectively, what, what patients need right now is this low-tech uh, public health aid. You can imagine that at least emotionally, a thoracic surgeon would push back against that a little bit and say, well, no, I have this very highly developed set of skills. I'm very reluctant to get rid of them. Um, and you might even say it might be legitimate for a small cadre of them to say, we're going to preserve these skills for the future when they're going to be needed again, right? Um, or you might say, no, objectively, you've got to adapt, right? Um, every service has this little failure adapt thing in the back of its mind, right? Uh, take, for example, you ever been to a cavalry base or to a formal event for the Army? The cavalry officers show up with, with cowboy hats and spurs. Uh, really, that's the dress uniform. Um, every cavalry unit has horses on the base, and they ride them around on ceremonial occasions, right? Uh, no, um, and that's just there because that's the legacy, right, of that branch. Um, and this part of understanding the profession is knowing why that's not silly, right? It's not entirely silly. It's a little bit silly, but it's not entirely silly. Um, to go to the other services. Um, the Air Force is our newest service, of course. It's existed only since 1948. And it's had two phases so far. It's, a, it's going into its third as we speak. Phase one was built on a theory of strategic bombing that was developed between World War I and World War II that assumed that by um, bombing strategic nodes, either transport and manufacturing or area bombing of civilian populations, there were arguments between those two possibilities, that you would uh, either end war quickly or with the existence of nuclear weapons, you would need to maintain mutually assured destruction. So the Air Force my dad flew in was a mad force, right? Mutually assured destruction. And the commander, LeMay, was so committed to that mission that he tried his very best to refuse to provide air power to Vietnam. Because you have air power in Vietnam is a sideshow. We exist to deter the Russians. And it was only when he continued to refuse to cooperate that um, that the civilian leadership finally said, we're going to take the, the pilots who get no respect in the Air Force, namely the tactical fighter guys, they'll do what we want them to do. So there's a very fine book from Mary University called The Rise of the Fighter Generals that documents around 73, 74, suddenly chiefs of the staff of, staff of the Air Force are fighter pilots instead of bomber pilots. That was a major cultural shift. And since then, every chief of staff of the Air Force has been a fighter pilot until the current one. Anybody want to guess what the current one is? Logistics? Close. Air transport. He's a transporter, right? Um, but the reason, does, it, does anybody see why I say the Air Force is about to get a new kind of leadership and a new kind of, become a different kind of service? What, what is the big thing that's going to change? UAVs. UAVs. If you really want to annoy a cadet or an Air Force officer, say, why would you ever put a human being in defended airspace if you don't have? Ask them that question. Why would you ever put a human being in defended airspace if you don't have it? Now, as you probably know, the Air Force was, was a, a poster child for unwillingness to adapt, right? Um, when the first weaponized predators were used, uh, who, who built them? Yeah, but you're the, you're the, you're the plan. You <laughs> CIA. Um, the Air Force hated them. The Air Force didn't want them, didn't want to buy them. Uh, when, when the number of cadets graduating the Air Force Academy going to UAV training exceeded the number going to manned aircraft training, you, you couldn't believe the cultural stress um, that those guys, that this is not real flying, right? Now the Air Force has decided, by the way, I'm not sure that they even need to know how to fly an actual airplane. 
In fact, it turns out they do better flying UAVs if they don't have flying actual airplanes. <coughs> and in fact, it turns out the Army says, what, no, why don't it, they don't have to be officers either? Because the Army flies all of their UAVs with enlisted people. So um, the Air Force has only begun to start exercising any professional ethical judgment to get with this program and figure it out. Uh, one small example. When I, just before I left the Air Force Academy two years ago, we, I was part of a small group that got a tasking from the Air Staff that said, tell us what the AFSC, which is the Job Designator Code, ought to be for UAV pilots. So we met for about six months talking about this question. We finally wrote them a long report. We said, entirely the wrong question. The question is not who operates the stick, because probably very quickly that, that will largely be automated for the purposes of getting the aircraft from point A to point B. That's not something you need a human being to look to anyway. The real question is, how is the Air Force going to develop a cadre of officers who understand the whole system of systems that unmanned vehicles are going to represent? Because 10 years from now, Chief of the Air Force, Chief of the Air Force is going to be a UAV guy. Just do the math. I mean, it's, it's got to happen, right? Now, can you imagine the cultural stress as the service tries to adjust all this? Um, and in fact, the, the whole rationale for an independent Air Force in the first place was dependent on the strategic bombing theory. But if you don't think you're going to do that, maybe you ought to put it back in the Army uh, if it's doing close air support. Uh, the Marines, for example, insist on having their own air arm because they don't trust the Air Force to do close air support. So as General Scales used to say, tell me why our Navy's Army needs its own Air Force. Um, uh, and, and the reason is because the Navy's Army doesn't trust the Air Force. Um, these are, does everybody understand how these are all professional ethics questions in a kind of complicated way? Um, so what you want to say to a senior Air Force officer is it's part of your ethical obligation to be thinking about this adaptability question, right? As recently as two years ago, if you poked an Air Force general at 3 o'clock in the morning, the first words out of their mouth would have been F-22. I promise you, F-22. Um, we lost the chief of staff of the Air Force and, um, and the secretary of the Air Force over this issue. Well, they lost a few nukes, too, but that, that was... The real issue was this, actually. Their insistence on... Lobbying for the F-22, even though the secretary said we're not going to build more than about 130 of them, they wanted 360. I said, you know, what? Who are you going to fight with an F-22? It's, it's a magnificent airplane, but you know, against whom exactly? When I used to sit against to annoy them. When's the last time an American pilot had an air-to-air -air engagement with anybody? Vietnam. Um, Americans haven't even flown in defended airspace. Seriously, defended airspace. Since then, a uh, little bit in Kosovo, a little bit. In <coughs> okay, uh, for the Navy, I'm still learning Navy. I'm just learning to speak. Navy. The Navy is not one service. The Navy is a bunch of tribes: uh, surface warfare people, aviators, and submariners are the three main tribes. Uh, they're very different cultures. Um, they treat. They are trained different kinds of officers. Uh, and they have trouble playing well together. Navy um, has a big problem along the line, uh, parallel to the Air Force problem. Aircraft, that's been the primary weapon system since, since uh, World War II. How many of them have we got? Anybody know? 11. That means that at any given moment, there are two or three of them in the seat, right? So what's the problem with an aircraft? It's a very large target. <laughs> and, and, and if anybody has been reading their news lately, you'll know the Chinese are developing excellent carrier sinking missile. Um, how are you going to defend an aircraft carrier against uh, a determined attack by missiles? You can shoot down a few of them, right? But missiles are cheap compared to aircraft carriers. You can saturate any air defense, right? So an aircraft carrier is very obviously not a sustainable platform for the future. So, what is? Hard to say. Sea denial. Sea denial, maybe. maybe. Uh, it's hard to know. Um, some people have written that anything that's on the surface of the water isn't safe, so you better think about under the water with pretty much everything. Or lots of much smaller things, like the, the, the one new ship in these buildings called the Literal Combat Ship, L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, that means shallow water. <laughs> close to things instead of being a blue water navy, you think about you know, kind of getting close to shorelines. 
And by the way, the air, an aircraft carrier is a crappy way to get airplanes into, into a land target anyway, because they don't have very good range, right? You gotta refuel them a lot. Um, and by the way, remember I said, why do human beings in independent airspace anyway? Um, why not just launch a bunch of UAVs? A much smaller thing, right? Um, to accomplish much of the same thing. So all, all of this is a, meant to illustrate what I mean by the uh, adaptability question in professional military ethics. Um, when you objectively can see a challenge, uh, it's part of your professional ethical obligation to be thinking about how are you gonna adapt <coughs> to address it. Um, the Marines are in even worse shape. Why do the Marines exist other than to wear the best uniform? To do assault across beaches from, from the sea. How much of that do you think we're going to be doing? Not much, right? Even the Marines don't want to do it. They want to go to the B-22 at least fly over the beach, right? Uh, so, um, so whether the Marines, now the Marines will always exist because politically it's impossible to kill them, so don't worry, don't lose sleep over them. But um, really what they're for as opposed, what, what have we been using the Marines as for the last 10 years? Um, okay, that's the end of my, that, that little block of stuff that I wanted to talk about. So let me just take a little pause. Anybody have anything you wanna offer about that? Seems to me, I, I can't speak with any authority about the UK system, but you guys are going through this massive drawdown too, right? So figuring out, what are the mission essential things you need to have in this with a much constrained budget? And by the way, we're about to have a massive budget cut too, so it's hard to know where to go. Um, in the US budget, there are only two places to get serious money, uh, Defense, Social Security, and Medicare. So. Let me give you an example from another profession. Right? Mm -hmm. Suppose you had a surgeon who said, I'm gonna do the surgery way, the way they taught me to do it in med school in 1980. I haven't read any journals since, but it was good enough then, it's good enough now. Now, about that surgeon, you would want to say they are unethical, would you not? They are unprofessional. Mm -hmm. right? Because part of the obligation of the profession is to be keeping up mm -hmm. with the best available knowledge because you have a social trust relationship with the client, right? So when I go to you, um, I'm assuming that if you are a professional, that, that you've been doing that, right? Because ultimately, the metric of your success is not do you defend your bureaucracy or even your preferred way of doing it, but are you able to meet the need of the client, which is the basis of the trust relationship between you and the society, right? So um, here's another example. There's a, a guy, a surgeon in the United States who published a book called The Checklist Manifesto. Anybody heard of this guy? This guy did a study to show that if surgeons used a simple checklist, um, they would reduce surgical error and, and left instruments and sponges and all kinds of stuff by a, a very, very high rate. Surgeons are very resistant to using his checklist. Right? He's been trying for about two years to persuade them to do it. But, you know, their culture is, hey, I'm a surgeon, you know, I'm, I, I know it all, I don't need this, uh, this stinking checklist. Even when objectively it's been shown that you would do your professional activity better if you adapted, right? So that's to your bureaucracy point, or, to, or more deeply, I think, not just bureaucracy, but culture, right? Mm -hmm. The cultures have been formed around certain ways of thinking, behaving, so Here's another example. For many years in the Air Force, the culture was that the, the head pilot was God, right? And then they did a whole series of studies showing if the co-pilot felt empowered to simply raise questions when things didn't look right to the pilot, the accident rate would drop dramatically. So the Air Force had to go through a whole retraining of the pilot culture to say, it's a team effort up there, right? If you see something that doesn't look right to you, I say, you know, did you, did you remember we should lower the flaps now or something like that? Okay. And you would think that's kind of obvious, but it, it was culturally not acceptable, right? So my point is, I mean, and we all struggle with it as individuals, don't we? I mean, if we've gotten highly developed skills, we kind of are proud of that accomplishment and love it. But if it's no longer doing the job, you know, then that's where the professional ethics piece has to be. It's obligatory of me to adapt, right? So now that's what you see. And the Army's kind of, as I mentioned, already may arguably swung too far the other way in terms of trying to adapt to counter-service. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's in fact the challenge, right? So the professional argument has to be, what is your evidence that this is the objective future need? Right? So, 
here's another example I used to say cadets. If, if what you want is close air support in Afghanistan, why not build a solar-powered, blunt-loiter aircraft that you can park at 60,000 feet with a whole bunch of, of GPS-guided weapons on them so the, the Joint Tactical Air Controller on the ground can send coordinates up to that thing and have them drop. You don't have, you don't have to refuel it. It, it can cruise over the battle space for days on end. It would be objectively a better way to deliver air power to a, to a, to a, a battle space, right? True enough? Assuming it's technically possible. What, what, there, what reason would you have not to do it? If you really press Air Force people, and I think they're changing now, it's beginning to change, but sort of the bottom answer is it's not cool. <laughs> it's just not cool, right? We are the culture of the, of the white flight scarf and kick the tires and light the tires, right? I mean, that's, that's, kind of, that's the culture. Um, and so it takes someone to step out of that and say, right? Or, you know, I mean, how did the Air Force get started in the first place? An army colonel named Billy Mitchell was convinced that he used air power to do all kinds of things, so he uh, violated a whole bunch of orders and went out and bombed a, a, a captured French vessel between the wars and sank it. He said, see, I can do it. He got court-martialed. Right? Um, but he said, he's the patron saint of the Air Force. Okay. Take, say, a mid-grade officer, a major or a lieutenant colonel, right? They're given a mission, right? They have a lot of choices about how they execute this mission, right? People will do it better and worse, depending on their willingness to try to do their best to understand objectively the needs of where they're going. Let me give an example. One of my favorite Army officers is now Brigadier General McMaster. But when Matt McMaster was a colonel, he was, going, he was at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, which is just down the road from me. And uh, he knew he was going to tell offer. And he knew that he was going to have to try to pacify this town. So he got all of the Arab linguists and specialists he could get from the Air Force Academy to train up his unit, even give them some Arabic, and then issued General Order 1, which was every time you offend an Iraqi, we're losing. Now that was one colonel on his own making a decision that if I'm going to be successful in tell offer, I can't use the normal overwhelming force approach that the, the U.S. Army had trained for, and he'd been trained for, right? On the fly, you, you realize the objective requirement of where I'm going is to not do what was the, what, what was the American doctrine, which it always was overwhelming firepower. That would not work until often, right? So at every level, I think professionals within their sphere of organization, I mean, you can't get different, well, here's another example. Uh, just last week, I was talking to an artillery officer who had been in, uh, in Iraq. He's a colonel. He said, you know, I, got, I was there with artillery. I realized I cannot use artillery in these urban environments because it's too indiscriminate. So he, he wrote back to the artillery branch in, in Washington and said, I need quick GPS-guided artillery munitions. And within six weeks, he got them. Now he said, in the first couple of battles, I only had two, you know. So I had to say to the commander, I can hit two targets with precision artillery, so you've got to be pretty picky about what you want me to hit with artillery. But I can't use the weapons I came with and be effective. Now those are both examples of mid-level adaptation. You obviously can't run your own procurement system. Huh? You, you, as Rumsfeld famously said, you come with the army you have, not the weapon, not the army you wish you had. Uh, if you look, uh, I mean, the Army talks about flexible adaptive leaders is what it wants, right? Uh, and it talks about soldier resiliency. In fact, that's a massive program because the ability of people to be both prepared for and to recover from the kinds of experiences that they're now having has become, you know, a major focus. I mean, the suicide rates in the Army are like three times above those of the general population. So, you know, the Army is well aware of all of those mental characteristics are as are more important than the physical ones. Is that, is that your point? Okay, let me uh, move on to another point that I wanted to make. Um, another thing that one has to do if one's to really work in the profession is understand the relevant uh, legal frameworks. Um, that is to say, one doesn't start with a blank slate here. One has to start with, uh, with things that every officer, that every soldier needs to know. So in, in the U.S. case, and this is one of my personal obsessions, you probably know this, that every military member, and for that, for that matter, every federal employee like me, had, takes an oath, and the oath is to the Constitution of the United States, not to any particular leader. Um, so it's rather important that they understand what the Constitution says. And frankly, they usually don't. Uh, so one of my pet peeves is, uh, has anybody been in an American Defense Department building? 
What do you see as you walk in the door? There are some pictures on the wall. Yeah, you see the president, the vice president, the secretary of defense, the service secretary, all the way down to the local commander. Constitutionally speaking, there's something seriously wrong with this picture. Maybe the only Americans in the room know. What should be at the top? The president, the Congress, and the Supreme Court, all three. This is a very important point because the Constitution says some, some things that are easily misunderstood, especially given modern force growth. It says the president is the commander in chief of the armed forces of the United States. True enough. And the reason that it said that was the founders were worried about unity of command. But if you read Article One of the Constitution, which is not about the president, it's about the Congress, it says it, it requires the Congress to create an army at all, and if you do it, you can only have it for two years. So the expectation was there would be no standing army. So I often like to say to, to students, you know, if, in, in the intent of the founders, the, in, in peacetime, the commander-in-chief is commander of what exactly? The Navy and the state militias, if they are called into federal service. But normally they work for the government, period. That's it. Right? Now that's important because it goes to the very deep question of civil-military relations. Uh, when Oliver North violated a whole bunch of federal laws to ship money to the Contras in uh, um, Nicaragua, he said, when he was brought before the Senate, if my commander-in-chief told me to stand on my head in the corner, I'd do it. Um, and all thoughtful officers said, where did somebody get to be an army lieutenant colonel with such a serious misunderstanding of the Constitution? An, an officer has no right to violate a federal law, even if the president tells you. It's an illegal order, and you're supposed to disobey it. So um, the, the starting point, for at least in the American context, and I'll leave you to figure out what the equivalents are in your various national structures, but for us, getting a clear understanding of just that point is vitally important. Why is it vitally important? Because if I get an order, for example, to torture a prisoner, even if it comes from the President of the United States, the right answer is that's a violation of a ratified treaty, and according to the Constitution of the United States, a ratified treaty is U.S. law, and that is an illegal order. Okay, so far? So, they need to know that. You, uh, in the American system, there's a unique code of military justice, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It's a own legal system. They need to know that. They need to know international law and treaties. In recent years, it's become fashionable in America to poo-poo the international system. I like to annoy them a lot by saying, whose bright idea was the UN? Um, our bright idea. But also to point out this clause of the Constitution that says what I just said, ratified treaties are law, are US law. Um, so you don't have an option with respect to that. Um, something else one has to understand to work with as well, I think, is understand the interconnections of the subparts of the profession. So for example, in the US military, one of our great strengths is the quality of our non-commissioned officer corps, the sergeant. Um, if you don't understand the role that the sergeant plays, vis-a-vis -vis the, the young lieutenant, platoon commander, for example, who's way younger and less experienced than the sergeant, that's a very complicated relationship. I mean, the young lieutenant is the officer, but you need to understand that. Um, okay. Let me go on to my general point about the limits of the philosophical approach. Uh, as David mentioned in college, I did major in philosophy, but I was also frustrated with philosophy in one way. Uh, one thing that frustrated me about it was its general ahistoricism, its tendency to approach the world as if ideas operated in some kind of historical vacuum. Uh, that's important when you're dealing with the military because obviously they're playing out in a real-world historical and an evolving environment. So let's just start with the basic question. The piece of Westphalia that sets up the international system. Um, We've, we've had it so long, we sort of take it for granted, but it's important to remember this is an invention of human beings at a particular point in time and for particular reasons. It solved some problems and it created some others. So remind yourself what it was. Before Westphalia in Europe, at least notionally, what was the idea? The idea was Christendom, a unified Christian civilization with the Pope as the supreme authority in the system. After the Reformation, that's no longer possible. And what follows is a series of wars. Like all wars, there are many sources of it. 
But one of the sources of the wars was the belief by all of the major players that they should put Christendom back together again in some way or other. Because the idea goes all the way back to Constantine, who thought that the, the unity of government rested on, as he put it, one god, one church, one emperor. And it became apparent, as, as those wars dragged on, that Europe was not going to be put back to religious unity. The, I mean, the Lutherans would have been happy with a Lutheran Christendom, the Calvinists with the Calvinist Christendom, the Catholics with the Catholic Christendom. It wasn't going to happen. So the Peace of Westphalia was not a triumph of anybody's ideals. It was a settlement of the exhausted, right? who said, if we're going to put an end to this perpetual war, we're going to have to give up on the Christendom idea. And the compromise is going to be a system of sovereign states. And those sovereign states will have two basic properties. Territorial integrity, you're supposed to stay out of the borders. And political sovereignty, which means within the borders they can do whatever they want. And nobody, no other state has liberty to criticize them. Now, given the religious issues that I just talked about, what are the practical implications of settling for the Westphalian state with respect to the religious convictions of individuals? The problem with that one was it only worked for Germany, it only worked for Lutherans and Catholics, right? But are you familiar with the phrase, Fugus Regio, I use religio, means for each king, their religion, right? So, what, so the practical implication, if you're a Catholic in a Protestant country, or vice versa, your government can treat you however they want, up to and including killing you. And all the states swallowed that because they said it's the best of a bad deal, right? It's the best of a bad deal. So to speak totally anachronistically, it was the hope for political stability bought at the price of human rights. Of course, the concept of human rights hadn't been invented yet, but in effect, that's what it was. Uh, saying, good luck with that human rights thing, right? You know, you're left to the tender mercies of your state. But does everyone understand why, at the time, arguably, it was a pretty reasonable compromise. The alternatives were all worse. They could go on fighting all forever, or we could accept this deal. Now, the fact that human rights were sold down the river by Westphalia was fairly obvious to everybody, right? Um, if you ever read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, there's a long preface to the King of France, even though he's in Switzerland. Why is there a long preface to the King of France? He said he's trying to persuade the King of France to stop persecuting Huguenots. This is what we believe, see, we're really okay. Right? That did not work out so well, but that, that was what Calvin was trying to do. So, this, fail, this weakness of Westphalia with respect to human rights ha has been palpable to everybody for a long time, but it got obviously very clearly articulated after the Holocaust with the slogan, never again, and with the brand new UN, one of whose first acts was the 1949 Genocide Treaty, which said, in broad terms, uh, if genocide is going on, the states of the world agree that they will do something to <coughs> stop. The result of that, for a long time, is you don't want to use the G word. Uh, when Rwanda was occurring, the woman who was the State Department spokesperson later was in my seminar at Carlisle, and she explained in some detail that every morning before she went out to the press, she was coached very carefully. First of all, not to use the G word to describe what was happening, but even down to the level of body language and so forth, that the policy of the United States is this is not genocide. Because the belief is that if we called it genocide, this kicked in some obligation to go do something about it, and, and President Clinton was determined we were not going, because he'd just been so badly burned earlier. Um, of course, now we've passed that threshold. President Bush called Darfur our genocide a long time ago, and so now we're in the world where we can use the G word all we want, still not doing anything, not doing anything effective, right? Um, and this all culminated a few years ago, as you know, when the, with the new responsibility to protect Dr which goes even further than the genocide century. So, so um, I was listening to a podcast flying across the pond and listening to a, a very uh, articulate a liberal guy saying, this clearly triggers R2P in Libya. We absolutely have an obligation to go. And his interlocutor was Ted Koppel, the kind of famous American journalist, said, well, not so fast. Think about the law of unintended consequences. Who are you going to send? How long are you going to be there? Uh, what are you going to do when you get there? I thought this all through. So what we've got is uh, the British scholar Jeffrey Best has a wonderful book called War and Law Since 1945, which I highly commend to you. But Best's argument is, says, look, where we stand right now is we've got two bodies of international law. 
Westphalian law, which talks about state sovereignty. And we have international humanitarian law, which suggests interventionism. They're both completely legally valid, and they are totally incompatible with each other. And that's exactly where we are. That's exactly where we are. Um, so um, it's interesting when you watch the behavior of states and you, and you listen to individuals that depending on the issue, they like one side or the other of the law. Right? So you know, if you don't like what's going on in somebody else's country, you really like international humanitarian law. If other people don't like what's going on in your country, you really love state sovereignty law. Right? And, you get, and you can play either one because they're both valid. So play the card that you like. Um, and there is no higher solution to that except notionally the Security Council. But the Security Council, as we all know, very, very rarely can agree to do much of anything. So soldiers are put in the middle of all of that, right? Trying to sort all that out. Um, the main point of this, and, and this is where I think philosophy really does fall short, I'm going to put this strongly, none of this, what I just said, is fully rational or even intellectually reconcilable. It's a mess. It means, therefore, that any attempt to insist on imposing clarity on the system will ironically end up with irrelevancy. Because the world is not going to conform to that clarity. So if you're going to help actual practitioners understand the system, you need to help them understand the mess and not the clarity. Because that's the real world in which they will be operating. Um, they need to kind of make their peace with this unclarity. There's always going to be, until we find a better political solution, there's a tension between, I think, our best moral impulses, which are always kind of Kantian or broadly universalist and cosmopolitan, stressing the equal value and dignity of every human person and, and the importance of their rights, and the reality that the world is still organized into sovereign states. Um, and rarely are states going to agree intervene against the sovereign state. Occasionally, individual states will do it. Uh, I was uh, using the example with David Weckham up at the staff college yesterday. You may remember Vietnam went into Cambodia unilaterally for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think most people thought that hardly a peep rose out of the international community. Normally, crossing another country's border is an act of war. Right? But given what was going on in Cambodia, I think most people thought, well, probably a good thing. Uh, we'll, we'll let that one go. That makes no sense legally. It's hard to justify. It doesn't create a case precedent for anything. If, if, if in fact, anybody's going to intervene in Libya, uh, I, I'll make you a large bet the Security Council will not authorize it. So if anything happens there, it's probably going to be NATO. Um, so let me just stop with that. The irreconcilable mess argument. What do you think? Thank you very much, Martin. Um, we have about uh, 25 minutes.